This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. We are joined in studio by John Marston to learn about transnationalizing Buddhism, Cambodian temples, student monks, and pilgrims in Sri Lanka and India. Well, welcome, everyone. This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, and I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones. Uh, With me is John Marston. Welcome, John. Thank you. Uh, Thanks for coming to our campus. Uh, John is an anthropologist uh, currently at the Colegio de Mexico uh, in Mexico City and made the uh, long, cold journey up north. (laughs) Well... A nice journey, yes, yeah. sir. Right, you're well accustomed uh, from this from this area. He is uh, he's an anthropologist that looks at uh, uh, Cambodia, social change, uh, and religious movements there. Um, he's probably most known, f- uh, among others, for his uh, book History, Buddhism, and New Religious Movements in Cambodia um, at, from Hawaii Press and Anthropology and Community in Cambodia from uh, Monash. So. Appreciate your previous work, and okay. um, he's uh, he's here uh, talking with us in in the states about a new topic: uh, transnationalizing Buddhism, Cambodian temples, student monks, and pilgrims in Sri Lanka and India. Um, so, thanks for your recent lecture. Okay. So to, to, to give our listeners a context um, for your for your for your work, you're here. Why? Why include Sri Lanka and India in in a, in a lecture about Cambodian Buddhism? What, what's the connection? Well, what I discovered, and I didn't know this at first, was that, um, well, I went to, I, I already knew that Cambodian monks were going to study in Sri Lanka. And so I, I was planning a trip to Sri Lanka and decided I should have at least a small research uh, focus. And... And I found that the situation was much more more complicated and interesting than I'd realized because I discovered that there was also um, a Cambodian temple being built in Sri Lanka. And as I looked into the topic more, I found that there are even more Cambodian temples in India, which is, is surprising. Why would there be... Um, temples identified as Cambodian temples in India. And I found this relates to the fact that there were student monks going to study there, but I also found that it related to the fact that many uh, Cambodians were going there as, as um, pilg- on pilgrimage groups. Yeah. We could call them pilgrimage, we could call them Buddhist tourism. Uh, some people don't like the this to be called tourism, but basically it's, there's tour groups to Buddhist sites with a with a religious purpose. So uh, Cambodia, a, a Theravada country, uh, predominantly, and uh, Sri Lanka is a is a majority um, uh, a Theravada country, and so that's the so this this is um, I guess not not shocking that they would want to go to uh, I guess um, for our listeners what. Um, why, uh, why India? Why Sri Lanka? Is it just because of the the historical home of the Buddha? Are there other reasons that are drawing them there? 
Well, there are historical reasons for going to India. India is the more surprising case in a way because um, India is not really a Buddhist country. Even though India was the historical origin of Buddhism, uh, that the Buddhist population in India is really quite small, although it's it's significant. It's, I've been told it's less than 1%, and uh, it has its own interesting... Uh, ramifications. Um, uh, so for various reasons, in the 50s and the 60s, there were a lot of Cambodian monks who went to study in India. This, um, and there's still this idea that India is a place where it's, it's proper for a Cambodian monk to go study. Of course, it's a place where you can study Pali and Sanskrit, the religious r- languages of Buddhism. So really, in, I mean, following a, you know, a, a historical trend for more than a thousand years, uh, pilgrims have been coming from, from China, from Southeast Asia to, to uh, visit the historical, the, the, the homeland of, of, of the Buddha, right? And so right. I guess, is it, uh, um, are, those, are, are those, those tour groups motivated by that sense of uh, this, this uh, historical, um, the importance of that? Well, they're motivated by uh, the desire to go to these places, actually. In the, in the Buddhist scriptures, the, there was one point where the Buddha uh, did actually say there were five sites which are worthy for a Buddhist to go to, and this included the site of the, the Buddha's birth, the site of his first sermon, is it uh, is it too crass that that to say they're merit making? That's that's a part of the why why they would want to do this. Well, what I was talking about today in the talk is that merit making is part of all of this. I don't know whether going to a mm. a site is merit making in itself, but in the context of Cambodia, many of these pilgrims they go there with the idea of merit making. They go there with the idea that they will. Um, they will make donations to these temples, uh-huh. and they will um, uh, um, they 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 make donations at the at the sites at the sacred sites. So and so going there is just part of it. It's what they're it's they're participating in in the activities there. Yes, in material ways as well. It, it has a it, there is a ritual function to it, and that ritual includes giving things. of Buddhism in Southeast Asia is a, is, a, is a long and important one. It's particularly unique in Cambodia, given its uh, uh, modern legacy. But take us back. What, what has been the role over time of, of Buddhism in, in Cambodia? Well, as you know, that uh, for without going into the Angkor period and what Buddhism may have meant at that time, so since maybe about the 14th century or even the 13th century, there was, there was the role of Theravada Buddhism, uh, which is one of the 
the major branches of Buddhism in the world. And it grew in Cambodia at the same time that it was growing in other, in other countries of mainland Southeast Asia and Burma and, and Thailand. I mean, what is now called Burma and Thailand and Laos. Um, and so it's, it's become very central part of the, of the culture in Cambodia and in the other, other countries that generally in a village setting, the, the center of village life will be the, the Buddhist temple. Um, traditionally and even up to the present time that young men um, the ideal would always be for them to spend a period of time at, at, in the monkhood as Buddhist monks in Southeast Asia it's considered acceptable to be a monk for a period of time and then leave the monkhood it, it becomes for many young men it becomes sort of a rite of passage and part one of one that they don't stay in but right it yeah that that in a sense you become a full-fledged adult male mm. by having spent a time in the in the Buddhist monkhood. What, what, if what would be an average that a Cambodian um, male might spend in a that didn't stay in the monkhood? Like well, how, how much time um, would they? Well, spend some in would that? stay. A uh, rainy season. The rainy season is the three months of the year when um, when monks are supposed to stay in their temples and not sleep outside of the temple. So the minimum would be would be um, one rainy season, and there are some who only do that, but more commonly would be to, in rural areas to spend one or two years in the monkhood, I think. And and what age would they be when they did that? So I think there is variation from uh, in the different Theravada countries, and um, uh, some it's more common to do it as a novice, some in a full-fledged um, monk or bhikkhu. So in Cambodia, I think the um, it would be typical to do it um, in your early 20s. Okay. Right, I guess right on that cusp of, of full-fledged adulthood. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> they're uh, the, the same, I guess, the same length of the, that, that, a, that a Western youth might be thinking about, the Peace Corps or something or doing right, that. Right, yeah, yeah. And uh, it also corresponds to the same age as military service, which is mm. interesting. And uh, well, that gets into a whole different topic. But in some ways, we don't think of um, being a Buddhist monk as something similar to military service. But it's a it's a period of of learning discipline, and in that mm. sense, it has something. For some young men, it it has some similarity to what. Others might experience in military service. Are there other some who go to sort of their, their parents encourage them to sort of shape up? Right, right. I mean, this gets in a totally different topic, <laughs> but I mean, there's even um, some belief in Thailand and Cambodia that uh, youth who are have problems with drug usage will be can be shaped mm. up by, by right. spending some time in the monkhood, although that can create problems <laughs> if they're not totally committed to, yeah. to the monkly discipline. Yeah, I think it's, it, uh, I've always thought is, uh, I've been with new visitors to Southeast Asia and, and Cambodia, and they, you know, they have a, they have an idea of, 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 of the monk as a sort of this archetype of, of a, you know, perfect holy being, and I'm I'm not saying that it is not that, but but it's they're they're also they're also human beings who 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 have a of a range of of 
of motivations of, of interest you have. Right. And especially in, I, I think it's different in Sri Lanka where, where it's sort of bad form to leave the monkhood once you've become a mm. monk. But in Southeast Asia, there's this sense that it's more often than not, it's a temporary temporary thing. And so these are young men who... Right, the range of people is... Uh, be yeah, who, who make the decision to be a monk with the idea that that after a period of time they they will they will be, they will return to normal life to have married to marry have have the regular mm-hmm. life of of another of of any man so so uh obviously buddhism and theravada buddhism especially is a is a is a huge figure in in cambodian history um the i hope our listeners know about um the the Khmer Rouge period in 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 Cambodia, but but give us a sense of of what happens to Buddhism um, over the the course of the sixties and the seventies. Um, well, um, in nineteen seventy, then there was a coup overthrowing the um, overcome overcoming. Um, sorry. There was a coup overthrowing the monarchy, and and the head of state, Prince Sihanouk, who was in power at that time. At that time, Cambodia became a republic. This had to do with the Vietnam War, in that um, prior to that, Sihanouk had tried to maintain Cambodia as a neutral country. And so after 70, when Sihanouk was overthrown, then Cambodia was much much more clearly on one side of the war, the side side of the United States. Uh, the war did not go well for the government, and more and more parts of Cambodia were under the control of the of the Khmer Rouge, the communist faction. Um, already, there began to be radicalization of these areas, although. I think in in most areas there continued to be the use of the the, the presence of the Cambodian uh, monkhood, um, but when the Khmer Rouge finally took power in um, April 1975, they basically ended the Cambodian monkhood or the practice were, of Buddhism. Were there, uh, were there what were the signs leading up to in, in the areas they controlled or the was it, was there a sense that could Buddhism that they would be compatible, or that that it could be would good Buddhists be lulled into thinking that the Khmer Rouge they're they're gonna it'll 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 somehow work within their system, or or were those signs already there? Um, that's not an area that I I I have under my thumb right now, um, but definitely there there was this sense I believe that. There was not the sense before 1975 that this was yeah. definitely going to result in, in the elimination of Buddhism. Right. Uh, there's no little red book that only you know. There's no, there's not even a you know it 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 uh, no one really knows. Uh, there was a certain fully, point where yeah. the Khmer Rouge had uh, adopted a specific policy of of eliminating Buddhism, but. Um, I couldn't tell you. Perhaps other scholars could exactly when that when that policy was adopted. But, but certainly we, after seventy five. But after it, after uh, the Khmer Rouge took over the entire country and the 
urban population was evacuated to the countryside, then very it took place a little bit gradually. I mean, the person who wrote about this is a scholar named Ian Harris, and and some monks who were in liberated zones were allowed to stay in the monkhood other than other people. In the in the urban areas, people were forced to disrobe. Monks were forced to disrobe very quickly, and the most prestigious monks were killed. Uh, and so very quickly, Buddhism as we know it ended in Cambodia. And uh, obviously, a dark period in world history, and in and certainly in Cambodian history. Um, how does how does Buddhism get back on its feet up until the point where we're talking about Cambodians building, you know, taking t- tours and building temples in in Sri Lanka and in India? Well, this is something I wrote an article about, and uh, um, so there's the standard view, and there's what I. I say in my article, but basically um, the, ca- the country was liberated from, by the Khmer Rouge at the beginning in late 1978, early 1979. And there was a period of chaos um, in which um, people didn't really know what the policy is and what they could and could not do in terms of, of a Buddhism um, sort of the official view is oh, that um, Buddhism was simp- was there were people who were illegally as reassuming the monkhood, and that they did this not following the 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 principles of ordination, and then finally this was resolved in September 1979 when the ordination was ceremony was performed in which seven monks were ordained, and they became sort of the monks who then reestablished okay. the monkhood in the country. I, I find it a little, my research shows that to be a little more complicated than that actually some of these 1970 ordinations before September were actually more legitimate than you might think. But this is a whole other topic that I don't know if we want to get into. Sure. Uh, but so so it's a it's a it's a gradual getting on its feet again um, after Cambodia has this 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 breath and then um, so in, it's through the through the eighties it's picking a momentum um, we can, or it's still slow. Well, we can say that it was um, still slow in the fact that uh, the government established in nineteen seventy nine was. Um, was a socialist government, and it was uh, very much under the domination of the Vietnamese, who had, who had um, overthrown the Khmer Rouge. So they made a great, uh, in a way, it was a major step forward in that Buddhism was allowed again. And so people could have temples, yeah. people could perform ceremonies, but there was a great deal of restriction on the role of Buddhism and the main thing that restricted Buddhism was that only men over 55 years of age were allowed to become monks. This was 
probably primarily because they, of the military needs of the country, they did not want young men becoming monks and thereby avoiding avoiding military service. Were the were the Vietnamese afraid? Uh, in the in the colonial era, of course, the monkhood had been have been important kind of agitators uh, and facilitators of 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 independence and and anti-colonial was, was there a was, were there fears that this might be a place for if young people are organizing in the monkhood that that they might not be uh, fans of the Vietnamese there either was that is that a motivation um, for them to stop it I don't think I've ever heard that um, one complicating fact factor was that um, there were there was a resistance movement based on the Thai border. And then one of the propaganda uh, points of the resistance movement was that the Vietnamese had, in effect, uh, wiped out Buddhism. And there were ordinations there, of, and there was the reestablishment of, of Buddhism there where young men could ordain. And there, there was a claim that they they were maintaining um, Cambodian Buddhism while the Vietnamese was um, was suppressing it. So there was a political dimension. There was a there was fear of that perhaps by the by the Phnom Penh government. But I don't know if there was, as far as I know, there was no fear that monks would um, would organize. Uh, and the other thing that we said, that despite this law, that young men could not ordain, many did ordain anyway. And so in, in rural areas, you would find young men as monks, despite the fact that there was legally, no organized, uh, legally yeah. They, they, yeah. they were not supposed to be. So the, so the, the, the official kind of um, reestablishment of, of Buddhism then... then it, it takes more than a decade. It's not until the 90s of, of a kind of its footprint getting back into Cambodia. I should know my dates. I'd have to check them. I believe it's in 1989. By 1989, that you have... Uh, um, in 1991, there would be the Paris Peace Agreements in which there was a, a settlement where there was a UN mission and multi-party democracy was supposed to be reestablished in the country. In the years prior to that, there were already negotiations taking place. And in 1989, the Cambodian government began to liberalize things, sort of as a way of perhaps, well, either preventing the settlement by, by sort of stealing its thunder or else anticipating it by, by making changes that would help the transition. So in 1989, there began to be Buddhism... Things like younger men becoming monks uh, and the reestablishment of Buddhist education in the country began to began to be put in place. Uh, and then after 1991, with the UN mission, then they really gained momentum at that time. Which which kind of catches us up to to some of your uh, current current work in this uh, in this in this paper in this research. Um, so how do these uh, how do these connections with with Sri Lanka and, and India emerge? Well, um, there had been connections 
uh, prior to the Pol Pot period. And that's a whole other topic which I've been interested in, but which I won't go into here. So these connections were interrupted during after the Pol Pot period. And in the 80s, they were also still non-existent. Um, what happened in at the time of the UN mission to Cambodia, then there were some Sri Lankans present in Cambodia who who had... Who working were, for the UN. For Two of them were working for the UN. Maybe three of them. Uh, one was, um, her name was um, Hema Gunati Loke. I'm probably pronouncing her, her name wrong. And um, she played an important role in Cambodia at that time. Uh, she worked for the UN and then for the Heinrich Bull Foundation. She worked to reestablish Buddhist institutions in, 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 in Cambodia, such as the Buddhist Institute. And she was very concerned with the, with the state of Buddhism. And she worked to bring Cambodian, young Cambodian monks to study in Sri Lanka. There was another man who worked for the World Bank, another Sri Lankan man, who about the same time had the same goals and also brought a group of Cambodians to study in Sri Lanka. So uh, I guess the the advantage would be that uh, Sri Lanka has a um, it's a major it's a majority Theravada country. They they um, is the idea that monks could go and relearn um, kind of the how the order is supposed to function and then and then and then uh, and then bring it back or 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 we're gonna project Cambodian Buddhism outward. What what are the I guess the what do the Sri Lankans think they're I think the Sri Lankans feel that if Cambodian monks get good training as uh-huh. Theravada monks in Sri Lanka, then they will be able to come back and okay. and restore Buddhism. And uh, um and I guess that is that that view is shared by the 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 you've interviewed some of the Cambodian participants in these early Right, um, right. What, are are they do they share that sentiment? Is that the same for them? Well, as I talk about, the, this turned out to be a very chaotic process in the early years. And so when I talk to them, <laughs> their memories are not necessarily all that positive. Okay. And they, um, because for very recent reasons, they were not perhaps ready to go. Uh, they did not have enough training in Buddhism or English or, mm. or international sophistication. Plus, perhaps the plan was not that well, the whole project was not that well planned on the part of the Sri Lankans. Other students had gone to Sri Lanka to study Buddhism from other countries, but the Cambodians were, in part because of their low levels of education, they were, one problem was that the first group of students, the first group of students was chosen by an exam given Nationally, so the students who scored highest on the exam were were the ones. Was, who, was it on on Buddhism or on in in English? Or it in was. A, I think it was a course on. It was an exam on Buddhism. Okay. I'm not sure exactly what okay. it was about. And so there was a group. I believe the first group was about thirty people, thirty monks. And uh, uh, in Sri Lanka, they were they were asked to study in 
the seminary system, which is called Pirivena. And this is generally where, because of their level of training, they were asked to study at the level of, of, of children. And so they reacted. So they're, they're sitting in classrooms with, with children. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there was a negative reaction to this. And plus uh, some naivete about what to expect on the behalf of the Cambodians. And um, so many of them ended up um, leaving, coming back to Cambodia, mm-hmm. and so many of them left the Cambodian monkhood, which in Sri Lankan terms that in Sri Lanka there's more of a negative... Um, so that was perceived as a failure by yes, the... Yes, yes. These would be professional monks, and they're going back yes. and leaving. And whereas in Cambodia... It's as I said earlier. It's more common for Cambodian monks to to uh-huh. stay in the monkhood for a period of time and leave. Um, so many of the people I interviewed look back on this as sort of a disaster. <laughs> but but what I want to emphasize is that there were some successes, and those successes okay. turn out to be important successes. That some of them did stay in the monkhood, and some some of them by their own efforts were able to get um, degrees in Sri Lanka. And these who did study and did finish their degrees have had um, an important role in Cambodia, in the Cambodian Buddhism. So, so maybe the, the, the initial architects of the, of the exchange, they didn't, um, they didn't have this kind of 100% success rate in in the, like they but but the seeds were planted for these these a smaller number of influential right and the other thing is that even though this these early uh, ex, this early experiment was very chaotic and everyone who talks about it describes the chaotic how were they how were they funded they did have funding by um uh well, once they got to, sh- the funding was from Sri Lanka. Okay. Um, it was not from Cambodia. I I I believe it was from private donation. Once they got to Sri Lanka, they were living as monks in right. in the Sri Lankan system and were supported by that system. Right. So the so the 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 temple system itself, just like the Sri Lankan monks, it would have it would have. Yeah, self-supported. Um, uh, but yeah, I can imagine. Um, you know, you do. You you've probably had students. I uh, too. You know, you take them abroad, and you have lots of ideas in it. But it can be. It can be also chaotic. Yeah, the yeah. kinds of the in, kinds in of in things you ways, want to in some orchestrate. Ways the, the the Cambodian student monks I look like I'm looking at are, are like student for international students <laughs> everywhere in the world. And the thing is that we. Because they're monks, we expect them to be mm. to be at a more elevated level and not have the same uh, adjustment problems. But but they did have the, these adjustment problems. So the subsequent groups were they were they treated um, more as as peers or, or or better curriculum or or didn't you imply that maybe they went to more rural areas after? Well, then. Uh, See, after there was problems with the first group, and then the second group, they um, they chose students differently, and okay. uh, and there were people who had taken the exam. There were monks who had taken the initial exam who thought they were going to be in the second group, but which weren't because 
they they decided to choose students differently, and they chose younger younger monks. Okay. And uh, so that initial that initial group these are, are these are these are over fifty five. No, no, the, the, no. The, the, these, these are these are. This was after nineteen eighty nine. There were young monks in Cambodia, so these were monks like in their twenties. Okay. But the, uh, but they chose teenagers in these later cohorts. And the teenagers, or you know, um, I I don't know how young the youngest were, but they were, these were under fifteen years old. Okay. And so and they sent them not to, not to the city, but to um, to several temples around the country. And again, that would have been very formative, I imagine. What it would have been very formative. Well, I it was imagine. formative um, and formidable. Um, and again, <laughs> there were some disasters, that, uh, including these, these were children who end up running away from their temples and, oh, no. and going back to Co- Colombo and, and eventually leaving the country. But again, um, there were some who, for it, where it worked, and some of them... Um, Starting in the 90s, have stayed in Sri Lanka, and because they were so young, they were able to learn Sinhalese, the language, and mm-hmm. they have uh, they have had um, they have grown up in in the monastic system in Sri Lanka and are able to study by in Sinhalese schools and have advanced to high degrees in the education system. So what there were some failures again and yet and yet there were some cases that worked. And so as a westerner I'm wary of the idea of sending children to another country to study. But since then the Cambodian monks have been very careful they continue to send children, child monks. They've been care- very careful about who they send and now are very careful about which temples they send them to. And this lots, lots of vetting, lots of kind of yes, monitoring. And, and, and but this there continues to be quite young monks being sent, and at the present time it seems to be working. So yeah, that's what I was gonna kind of flash forward to. So what is the what does that exchange look like? Look like now? Uh, you mentioned these uh, that uh, groups of Cambodians uh, laity who want to go and um, uh, visit the sites of the Buddha. The, the and you also showed us some pictures of some beautiful uh, Cambodian temples in. Well, yeah, we're. I mean, this is we're talking about two different countries, and so so far we've been mostly talking about Sri Lanka and. Most of the Cambodian temples that I, I showed in slides of in my talk are in are in India, but there is a Cambodian temple now in Sri Lanka as well. Um, uh, so the situation in the two countries is a little bit different, but there has been in both countries um, there's been a process where Cambodian monks have gone to study, and there's been a process of building temples, and there's been a process of of Cambodian um, tour groups going to visit sacred sites. And these three things are are related. So what happened in Sri Lanka is that, whereas before there was a very clear pattern of sponsorship by 
Sri Lankan um, Sri Lankan monks and Buddhist intellectuals, there's been more more Cambodian monks were going what they they use the phrase on their own, whereas they instead of having the sponsorship of Sri Lankan institutions, and they also don't have sponsorship official sponsorship of the Cambodian government. There's people who, there's monks who make the decision to go to Sri Lanka. They have support either from their family or from their temples, sometimes from individual donors. Sometimes these individual donors in Cambodia... Some of the Cambodians who are in, in Sri Lanka, like they, they hear about what it's like and they want to, I mean, are they, they must be that often those kind of exchange networks work that way. This the, the Those are kind of an anchor for... Um, telling, passing the word about what it's like and you should come right. study here. Right, and so there are um, people, there's the belief that this would, this is an opportunity for education. And so for some... Is it perceived they can't get that education, that same education in uh, in Cambodia or, I, I or think, different? I think sometimes that's the perception or there's the perception that they can either get a better education in Sri Lanka or they can get it more easily for one reason or another. Okay. Um, for some of them, what they specifically want is a Buddhist education and some of them are going to Sri Lanka as monks just to get an education. And they know they can, it's more easily, it's more easy to get um, sponsorship to get funding as a monk than if they were a lay person. Oh, okay, right. So, so it's an educational opportunity. Um, do you do you have a sense that um, if in that early cohort, not a great number of them stayed in the monkhood, is that um, is there a perception that more are staying that 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 study in Sri Lanka, or is it, do you do you know yet? Well, I don't think we know yet. What we what I haven't mentioned yet, there is now, I, for the past, um, I have it in my paper, but I don't remember the date, maybe say for the past seven or eight years, there's been a scholarship group, a scholarship fund from an organization fall, called um, KEEP. Um, it's Khmer Educational Association Program. That's not exact terms. Do, should we pause until I look for yeah, it? Yeah, if, so, um, if you want to look for it, we can then you can uh, read it. Yeah, since 2007, there's a scholarship provided by the Khmer Buddhist Educational Assistance Project, and um, that's an NGO that was originally formed on the Thai-Cambodian border, and um, this funding is also keep sought funding from the Kiense Foundation, which is a Tibetan Buddhist foundation, and so at least some of the monks going to Sri Lanka now do have funding, and these are monks that are chosen by the Buddhist University in Cambodia, and these monks um, make a commitment that when they return to Cambodia, they will teach for a period of time in the Buddhist Institute, uh, not the Buddhist Institute, the Buddhist University. You had uh, you had mentioned that uh, 
some pretty important figures in at the at the Buddhist university and in it and Buddhist education were from this early group. Is that is that right? Right. That uh, as it so happened that the two of these, well, I think now there are four professors at the Buddhist university in Cambodia who <laughs> are from this cohort. Two of them are still monks, and two of them are no longer monks. And the rector, I believe that's his title, is um, is one of this group. And he later on later got a doctorate in, in India. And then the number two ranking was also uh, administrator of the Buddhist university, also got his, um, also was part of this group who got a master's degree in Sri Lanka. He later got a doctorate in in Cambodia. He happens to now ha- be pursuing a postdoc at Harvard. It's doing well, sounds like. <laughs> I, I, yes, yes. Uh. So the, so the, um, the exchange, what, what, what scale are we talking about um, in terms of, uh, if you know, number of pilgrims or number of, of students who are studying there um, or number of, like, how, how, how big or small is this? Well, what I figured out at one point, and there's, these numbers go up and down, uh, that I think at the present time there are about 100 Cambodian Buddhist monks studying in Sri Lanka and about 100 studying in India. Okay. That's not insignificant. No, it's not. And so even if, even if say, 15 out of 100 stay in the monkhood and assume positions of leadership in Cambodia, then, then that would, could have a significant impact on Cambodian Buddhism. So Sri Lanka is is playing an important part in the reconstitution of of Buddhism in 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 Cambodia. It has it has Cambodia has neighbors that are that are also um, and 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 close friends that are uh, adjacent. What about uh, Thailand and and Burma? Uh, how how big are those inputs to Cambodian Theravada uh, vis-a-vis the Sri Lankan? Well. There are also Cambodian monks studying in these other countries as well. And so my research happens to be in Sri Lanka and India. And so I, I occasionally will learn about Cambodian monks studying in Thailand. I interviewed a few in Thailand, but I don't have a clear sense of that. I think sometimes it's gone up and down according to Cambodians' relation, political relationship with Thailand. Right. Um, I know that in the case of Cambodians going to study in in Burma um, or Myanmar, that um, there are also a a number of scholarships. And some of the monks who studied in Myanmar then later on moved from Myanmar to Sri Lanka. Um, Hmm. they, They will say things like that it's better for certain things in in Myanmar, better for other things in Sri Lanka. I I can't tell you um, 
how much impact studying in different countries has had. Um, I think the fact that in Sri Lanka there is this these scholarship from Keep maybe makes a more formal connection that um, and that the monks who study with these Keep scholarships will be coming back to um, to teach at the Buddhist university. This perhaps. Uh, that, that commitment for, that yeah, perhaps yeah. that suggests yeah. a, a stronger um, connection than in the other countries but but ultimately I don't know that and uh, we don't know who will in the in the long run end up having a role of leadership in in the Cambodian monkhood or or some of them some of the monks who are studying now will leave the monkhood but will us will, from their education in India or Sri Lanka, will assume leadership in other in other ways. Uh, well, this is this is this has been really fascinating, John. Um, where where is this headed? It's uh, it's just it's part of a it's part of an article, part of a book. Uh, when when uh, when can we read this in print? You think? Well, I don't know. I actually the interesting <laughs> thing is that this was my my earlier research. And after doing this research, then I became fascinated. And this research is about what's happening now. But my, uh, in the process of doing this research, I became fascinated with the Cambodian monks who were, who were in India before 1975, before the Pol Pot period. And so in some sense, this might be the last chapter in a book that will focus more on these Cambodian monks who were in primarily India um, prior to 1975. And, and they, there's fascinating stories about that. Uh, there were two monks who, who became rather famous, uh, and one of them was named Mahagosananda, and the other one was named Dharmavara Mahatera. And so I, my... My research has gone more in the direction of studying those figures and the other monks who were studying with them. So I hope, I'm hoping it will become a book, but it will take a while. Well, uh, John Marston, let me thank you for your, for your time. Okay. And come back again. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinzer for today's music. And the GU for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。